Chapter 17 of Verona, Newdonia. Wait, what are Bukans? asked Jack, as he wrote in his journal he was given in the city of Eldon. Oh, don't worry. They are very rare, said Gills. The outlands are full of an assortment of kingdomless creatures. Some are kinder than others. Most are ruthless barbarians. They live along the rivers and mountain ranges that create the natural borders of the kingdoms. The Bukans are notorious for leaving no one alive when they attack. No worries, though. They usually travel along the no-man's land of the far north. Our ship entered the clear green river, and I could see that it narrowed up ahead. I peered into the water of the shallow river, and watched as large purple plants quickly close their mouth-like leaves as our ship passed over them. Why don't some of the kingdoms just wipe them out? asked Larry. They try, but it's complicated. No army is allowed to enter the outlands. It is considered an act of war against neighboring kingdoms. The Emerald River continually narrowed as we got farther from the vast South Sea. We were surrounded by dark, thick forest of trees that were smaller than the trees of Elden and more jungle-like. They were deeper in color, with rich green needles that fanned out almost in the shape of a star. Colorful wildlife moved through the forest as we passed by in the ship. We are far south now, and the wildlife was very different from the north. One of the creatures, with bushy burnt orange hair and six arms and legs, jumped from one of the trees towards our highest mast. As soon as it had landed, it fell and landed right next to my feet, barely missing me. It was huge, almost the size of me, which I hadn't realized because it was so high up. Blood now dripped from its big, pig-like nose and floppy ears. It must have died from the fall. Good, said Leafin, standing behind me. I turned to see his dart gun still in his hand. He wore a proud smile. I, I don't know, was it dangerous? That thing could have killed me if it landed on me, I said, still in a little shock at what just had happened. The creature looked menacing and quite ugly, but I didn't understand why he killed it. Leafin just smiled. Nice shot! I love eating Tumkin, said Gills, pulling the creature by one of its feet towards the cook. Gills was right. Tumkin was tasty indeed, especially mixed with a variety of spices Levin had gathered from the forest. The only thing I could compare it to on Earth was the sweet and sour pork you might find at a Chinese restaurant. It was great to have something different than fish for the first time in weeks. The next day the wind died down, so we slowed to a snail's pace. Leafin would fly off about every 30 minutes and scout what laid ahead. Once in a while, he or the other Elden Boran would come back with some creature they had shot while flying through the trees. A couple of more days passed, and we were still traveling through what seemed to be an endless forest. It all started to look the same, though every day I saw a creature and plant I had never seen before. One afternoon, I was out on the deck laying in a hammock while my brothers played cards, when I noticed it had become almost silent. The continuous sounds of the creatures in the forest had stopped. The ship slowed, and we entered a narrow canyon, and the wind died down completely. I looked over at the captain, who was steering the ship, and he whispered to us, Stay calm and still. They're doing their stalking. Stay where you are. Let me do the talking. I quickly sat up and looked around and could see nothing. He obviously knew what was about to happen. The captain gestured to me to stop moving, and when I looked back at him, he gave me the look of death. I froze and tried to be still. 
I looked in the trees again and couldn't see a thing. Suddenly, a horrible scream pierced the silence from the forest on the starboard side, and a deep drumming began. For a moment, I thought I saw a hairy creature appear out of nowhere, like he was invisible one second and then there the next. Bloody Saskets, said Gills. Then a large number of beasts that looked just like the Bigfoots of legend swung out from the trees on both sides of us, dropping onto the deck. Most of them either had a type of spear or club strapped to their back or in their hands. Several of them missed the boat entirely and fell into the water. Others ran out from the forest and threw large spears at the ship that stuck to the side of our vessel and connected to ropes that led back to the trunks of the trees. In front and behind us, large primitive canoes were being paddled towards our ship, with warriors standing and yelling as they waved their weapons. We were completely surrounded and overrun in seconds. These beasts were all over the boat, speaking to us in their grunt-like language and pointing their weapons in our faces. Our ship came to an abrupt stop as the ropes that were attached to our sides went taunt. I tried not to move. Then a very large sasket swung in and landed on the deck near the captain. He looked to be their leader, and he carried a large wooden spiked club. His long hair was a silver color, and his fangs hung over his dark lips. He walked up to the captain and grunted at him in a variation of short and long noises in different tones, while at the same time blowing from his nose and mouth burst. He seemed to be so much more animal than man. As he walked around, I noticed that his long hair would change colors and pattern to match exactly what he was standing next to. It flickered in and out while he jumped around grunting, then suddenly stopped and was all silver again when he calmed down. We're just passing through, Urka, on Russo's errand. No big deal. I've got some goodies on my boat that might be of some appeal, said the captain, pointing to a covered pallet on the deck. Erka quickly jumped over to the covered pallet and ripped off the covering. Underneath were the items we had traded with Gil's people a couple weeks before. Erka inspected them and signaled to some of the other Saskets. They then took them away, loading them on the canoes and barges. Then Erka walked over to Cubby and roughly took his hat off his head, grunting inches from his face. <laughs> Easy there, Grandpa Bigfoot. I think that hat might be a little small for you, said Cubby. They laughed fearlessly in Urka's face, possibly slightly drunk. Urka angrily started to circle Cubby, swinging his spike, barely missing him and smashing him to the mast behind. Come on now, Urka, we've paid our dues. We don't want any trouble, and you don't want Russo to pursue. Urka grabbed one of the ropes and swung back into the woods, yelling something as he did. As quickly as they had come, they were gone. I watched as their hair blended perfectly into their surroundings as they hurried off. Relief washed over me. We had just been ambushed by a bunch of armed, angry Sasquatches. What a place this was! Suddenly it made perfect sense why most of the beings on Arona lived in fortified cities. You could have been killed, said Drew, walking up to Cubby. Ask me if I care, replied Cubby. He slouched back down in his hammock, unbothered by his near-death experience. It seemed his hope of getting home was dying. Every day that passed felt as if we were losing Cubby emotionally. He drank and slept all day, hardly talking to anyone. He even started gambling with the crew during Pino, trading his few belongings for Quan. We begged him to stop, 
He knew how dangerous it was, but just didn't seem to care anymore. After we removed all the bolts from the sides of our ship, the crew slowly pushed on with long oars through the narrow canyon. Do you think they'll attack again? Jack asked Gills. No, they got what they wanted. They know if they take too much or touch their own, that Russell will make them pay and have them hunted. As long as they follow these unwritten rules, Russell lets them be. Do we need to worry about other creatures attacking us before we reach Newdonia? No, not with the Saskets here. They are very territorial. Russell knows that it's better to let them stay than have some less desirable outlander take over this spot. This way, they fight to control their area and we pay a small toll to pass. It's safer and costs Russo less. He'd spend a fortune if he had to station troops here, and King Richard wouldn't like that either. I thought about their amazing camouflage hair, how it changed colors and patterns to perfectly match any surroundings. It made me wonder if this is how the Bigfoot creature of Earth could always avoid capture. Thankfully, the next day the river opened up and the wind was blowing again, so we made some good progress. Late the next afternoon, the river split, and we took the smaller tributary that headed south. Right before it started to get dark, Leafen came flying back from a short scouting trip, smiling and yelling something to Trendon. We're here! Newtonia less than few miles ahead! Trendon translated. I could see what looked like a high structure and wall in the distance. As we got closer, I saw there are two enormous stone sculptures on each side of the river. They were knights standing with long swords in their hands, pointing downward into the ground. They had crosses on their chest and Latin written along their belts. I saw an impressive stone wall and fortifications about 200 feet high. The walls went on as far as the eye could see. The wall spanned the river in an arc, with a large metal gate plunging into the green river. Huge moss-covered towers with weapons that looked like catapults were built on top of each, guarding the entrance. There it is, the outer wall of Nudonia, the most powerful kingdom of men, said Gilles. We all looked over the bow of the ship in awe. Upon getting closer, men lit the catapult ammo, setting it aflame. Two garrisons were situated on each side of the river before the gate. Long stone docks jutted out from each garrison, nearly touching in the middle. As the captain steered us towards the gap in the docks, armored soldiers with large crossbows ran out of each garrison and into position. Once they were in position, I watched a man in dark clothing walk out to greet us. Well, you're here early, Captain Brawson. How was your journey? asked the man as he walked aboard the ship with papers on a type of clipboard and a felt pen. Better than most. Good wind pushing us south along the coast, replied the captain. Anne lifted another latch and looked below into the now empty storage areas. Where is the rest of the shipment? This was all I was instructed to deliver. I know compared to usual, it is but a sliver. This isn't even 10% of what you normally bring, he said, getting angry as he showed the captain the paperwork. He stomped over and opened the last empty storage area. Now don't get angry at me. I do as I'm told, you see. I don't know what you're trying to pull, Captain. King Richard is going to be furious. The last 12 shipments have been like this. And who are these men? I've never seen them before. They're not in the papers as slaves or trade. 
They were sent personally by Russo to urgently meet your king. He commanded that to Nudonia, them I must bring. Very well. Well, it's your head, boss. Off, you're lying. Open the gate! Yelled the man, walking off the ship. The tall metal gate slowly clanked out of the now dark, dripping water. Men on both docks attached hooked chains to the sides of our ship, and one larger chain to the metal hook on our ship's bow. Then the side chains went taut and connected to a railing system on each side of the canal. The boat jerked, and I almost fell over as it started to slowly move towards the gate. The side chain seemed to be keeping us in the middle of the canal, while the front chain pulled us forward. I looked up as we passed under the gate and saw men, men that appeared to be just like us, in heavy armor. They held crossbows, bows, and other weapons. It was as if we had been transported back to medieval Europe. After a while, I settled back down. The captain said the journey to the capital, New London, would take a while, and that the ship would be pulled the entire night. We were no longer in a river, but a man-made canal. On each side ran stone walkways with large lighted torches about every 50 feet. It felt comforting to me to be in a place that was a little bit more like home, even if it was a home from a thousand years before. The anticipation of reaching New London made it difficult for me to sleep. Eventually, just before dawn, we came to another gate, like the one we had already gone through. It was slowly raised as we approached. The gate opened into a large lake. In the middle of the lake, on an island surrounded by thick stone walls, was the most majestic medieval city I had ever seen. Dawn was breaking and the entire metropolis was still lit up. Imposing round towers the size of small skyscrapers broke up the walls every hundred feet. On top of the towers and all around us were white flags with a golden border and red cross in the middle. Magnificent stone buildings and grand churches filled the skyline as the dawn bells rang out. Our ship was pulled up to a dock where we got off and were greeted by what looked like a high-ranking Nudonian. Welcome! I received a message from the North Gate about a delegation from Russo who needs to meet with King Richard. May I ask what this is regarding? I have a message for your king, I said, stepping forward. And what is that message? he asked. It is a private message from Russo, one I was instructed to give to the king personally. Very well, follow me. We walked across a long, wide causeway that led to the city walls in the middle of the lake. Once inside the great city, I became excited to see the comforts from home that we had missed. Pastries, breads, chocolates, and other simple things we longed for were being served in the taverns and bakeries. We entered a beautiful, fortified stone palace to meet yet another finely dressed Nudonian and a group of palace guards with large pikes. Welcome to New London. The morning meetings have just begun. Please hand over your weapons to these men, and I will guide you to the King's Hall. His men searched us thoroughly, and then they opened two beautifully carved wooden doors, unveiling the grandest room I had ever seen. The ceiling must have been more than 300 feet high, and the room was colossal, much larger than a football stadium. We walked and walked until finally we arrived at a line of men and women dressed in layers of fine silk. They were all waiting to speak with the king, 
who was still quite a distance away in front of us, sitting on his throne. Finally, when it was our turn, at the front of the line, we were announced. A delegation from Russo, with a message for King Richard. As we walked closer, I noticed it was a young woman, not a man, sitting on the main throne. A young man sat beside her, and several other women and men were standing behind and to the sides of her. Come, come, come now. What is this message that requires an audience with the king? She asked, signaling for us to hurry over. I stopped about ten feet from her chair, as I had seen the others do, and knelt on one knee. What say you? What is this message? She impatiently questioned. I looked up at her and completely froze. It was the girl from my Arone-induced vision I had seen when I tried that pure Arone. I was helpless and speechless for the first time in my life. I couldn't move or speak. She was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. She had soft, flawless, cream-colored skin, dark, flowing, wavy hair, and big, beautiful, hazel-yellow eyes. I could feel my face turn red as I knelt there silent, for it seemed like forever before finally stumbling out some words. Hello, my my lady, I I am Troy, a man from Earth. I was given a message from Russo that I promised to hand to the king personally. Well, Troy, man of Earth, she mocked. I am Chelsiah, granddaughter of King Richard, and princess of all Nudonia. I rule in his absence. Now tell me, what is this message? She sounded even more impatient now, and those around her giggled. She seemed so strong and regal, but somehow I knew her. The girl from my vision was shy, almost insecure. I could tell she was trying to impress those around her and portray a powerful woman who ruled in her grandfather's absence. This message is a letter, I replied, finally getting control of my words. Fine, bring it to me, she said, signaling for me to come closer. I stood up and walked over to her, trying to keep my cool. I had never been so nervous in my life. Upon getting closer, I realized she was even more beautiful than in my dreams. I felt my heart skip a beat with excitement and blood rushed to my face. It was as though I was struck dumb with love. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I wanted to touch her, to talk to her, to be with her. I knew her. I took out the letter and placed it in her hand. All of a sudden, as I released the letter, my hand shaking, I heard myself say out loud, beautiful. I heard Cubby snicker and had the sudden desire to melt into the floor. I had never said that to a woman in my life, let alone a woman I just met, who was also a princess and in front of total strangers. What was happening to me? She looked up sharply and we made eye contact. Her cheeks flushed and she looked down embarrassed. She let out the tiniest smirk and squirmed in her seat. I felt relieved and smiled. I- I'm-, I'm so sorry, I said. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. She didn't respond, and instead looked to one of the men standing to her left and said, Isaac, a celebration is in order. These men visit us from our home world. Let us show them some true Newdonian hospitality. Take them to the king's guest apartments and prepare for a feast. I didn't know what to say. Thank you, princess, I blurted out as Isaac smiled at me and motioned for us to follow. Beautiful, 
<laughs> Tease Jack. That was amazing. Nice job. Ah, I don't know what happened. It's so embarrassing, I said. Real smooth, real subtle, <laughs> laughed Drew as he put his arm around me. Leave it to Troy to go after the princess, said Cubby, laughing with Drew. We were led to our rooms and given some odd medieval attire. We all laughed and joked about how terrible they fit. Now that I was away from her, I was giddy and excited about what had just happened. I felt like a fool, but it was over, and her reaction gave me hope. I was excited to see her again, even if it was dressed like a character from a Shakespearean play. <laughs>